0: and to remind you that above all, this too shall pass. Welcome back to another expert episode of the podcast. And for those of you who celebrated, I hope everyone had at least, the very least, a manageable Thanksgiving. I know, again, we're moving into these holidays that are very tough for breakups, but I'm very excited to introduce you to today's guest. Today I have Dr. Anita Coonley she has her phd in counselor education and supervision she is certified as a highly reliable coder of the adult attachment interview she has authored or co-authored nine books her most popular book is called the mr rogers effect but today she's here to talk about her newest book which Won't be available until January, but is available for pre-order right now with some incredible bonuses if you order now. Her new book is called The Four Relationship Styles, How Attachment Theory Can Help You in Your Search for Lasting Love. And I really love Anita's approach to attachment style. I think attachment style is hugely impactful for when when you are navigating relationships and being aware of what you are, but I do tend to think that unless you have a secure attachment style, I think the other types can be seen just through a negative lens, but Anita really takes all four attachment styles and she approaches it from a strengths based approach meaning she'll tell you what the positives are if you have an anxious attachment style the positives if you have an avoidant attachment style and I also love that she has taken these four styles and made them comparable to different occupations for example anxious attachment style is the investigator avoidant is the security guard so I just love how easily digestible what she describes is attachment theory can get really, I don't know, just deep and negative in certain ways. So I loved her approach. I hope everyone goes out and orders her book and enjoy the interview. Welcome, Anita, to the Heal Your Heartbreak podcast. It is such an honor to to have you on today and to chat with you about your new book. Thank
1: you so much, Kendra. I'm excited to be here with you.
0: So I always love to start off talking or asking people about what drove them into this particular subject matter that as someone who went through this a couple years ago, it takes a lot to write a book. So it has to be something that you are very, 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 very interested in. So I would love to hear what drove you to start looking at these relationship types, attachment theory, all of that. Yes, I
1: definitely. were kindred spirits and uh, putting in all that effort to... Yeah and develop cuz that's that can be challenging but you know it's such a fascinating topic when i started graduate school and and i was studying in the school of psychology and counseling and i started learning about attachment theory and realizing wow this really explains almost all the relationship dynamics that i've experienced and the more i dug in and the more more training when i went to this program at, at uc berkeley to learn how to code attachment interviews it's just really detailed testing system, I started just learning more and more like all the different layers. And I realized that so much of my, the pain that I'd experienced and challenges I'd experienced in my life were beginning to make sense. And I, and I could understand and having that explanation to understand, I thought really gave a lot of hope. Yeah. That's one thing I really like about your podcast is I noticed that you focus on promoting hope and helping people find hope, especially during Very difficult times as a side note, but yeah, so that was part of it. And then as I, you know, I had my own challenges because as you know, from attachment theory, a lot of what we experience in our relationships now has its roots back in what we experienced during childhood. I was so thankful to have two amazing grandmothers that were so loving and, you know, a a family, but, you know, I did go through some trauma, some bullying, some challenging experiences, early on and then when I got to college and and adulthood and dating relationships I had some amazing relationships and then others that had a lot of heartbreak and I wanted to understand you know how could it be that some connections were just so amazing and then others were just so sort of tangled up and and I wanted to make sense of of that. And so I just did this deep dive into attachment and really realized that it holds so many answers and so much hope that you're not stuck with the relationship style or attachment style you have, you can actually make it better. And I felt like it it helped me a lot in my journey. And although there's lots of peer-reviewed articles and academic text and research studies out there, and there's some great books on attachment out there too, but there wasn't the kind of book that I wanted to be able to share with my students and my clients to make attachment very user-friendly, to have a statistically validated but easy quiz to let people identify their style, and also one that really showcased the strengths as well as the challenges of of each of the styles. I really like that a strength-based approach. In counseling and psychology, we can focus more on pathology and diagnosis, but I find it helpful to focus also on strengths and how we have developed resilience to help us overcome. So each of the relationship styles has its unique sets of of strengths and and challenges. So I think that's the short answer even though Yeah, <laughs> a little long.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I became familiar with attachment theory. I had a friend just hand me and it's so funny I was cleaning out stuff the other day and I found the book that she gave me, but I don't know if it's the original book on attachment, but attached by Amir Levine. And, and that I remember I was going through a breakup. It it really struck me as in a lot of ways it was validating, but what's interesting is that was probably eight years ago as time has gone on. And as I've talked to more and more people going through breakups, I find that attachment theory can be really helpful in a lot of ways but i also find especially for people going through breakups it can be a little troublesome for them because i i do think they tend to focus on the negatives on them especially you know someone coming out and realizing oh i have an anxious attachment style i must have ruined the relationship you know and i think people can really start focusing in on And so I've got to a point where I was like, I wouldn't even really dive into attachment theory until you're a little bit further along in your breakup. So I love the approach of you taking a strength-based approach to it, because I think if you went through that book, you would think, well, the only good thing is to be a secure. Otherwise, there's nothing good about your style, you know? So that's kind of what I came out of with a lot of the other attachment stuff is this idea that... You should be secure. Otherwise, you're going to be troublesome or you're going to ruin relationships. You're going to self-sabotage good relationships. I've heard that a lot. So I think there can be a lot of negative things that can come out of that for people who probably aren't diving into the level that you obviously have with all the research that you've done.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, we tend to have that bias towards the negative and can tend to to see things. And in in some ways it's adaptive, right? It helps us look out for problems and danger. But at the same time, you know, having self-compassion, we've seen that can be linked to having more secure, satisfying relationships. So I appreciate what you're saying and encouraging people to be kind to themselves and kind of take... Time to really heal and maybe wait until they do that level of analysis. But I think with a strength based approach, it's helpful because you can see how your relationship style has really been helping you adapt to your environment. And the other idea is, so each one helps you adapt and develop this sort of skills or, or superpowers, <laughs> in a sense, if you will. And, you know, you could be high or low functioning within each style. And the more self-aware you are about your tendencies, the higher functioning and the less anxiety and the the less avoidance. And even people that have a secure style, which I tend to call the networker, right? Cause they move towards connecting. But even then you often have tendencies, either anxious, like the, what we call the investigator style or avoidant, the, the security guard style. And so knowing kind of what those tendencies are can really help because we know denial heals nothing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the first step for obviously changing anything is going to be awareness and just understanding yourself better. And I love this stuff just because I think there have been so many times in my life where I have felt something was just maybe innately wrong with me and then I see something and I'm like oh, first of all, I'm not alone. Second of all, there's an explanation for it. There is a term for it. And there's usually a way to work to work out of it. And one thing that, that struck me so much in when I was chatting with your team about having you come on is this whole idea of it's not you, it's me, but what if it's neither in breakup? And I love talking about that because I do really think almost all breakups come down to incompatibility in one way or another. But I get those questions all the time of, we loved each other. It felt like a great relationship. Everything was going well. I don't understand how it couldn't have worked out. Before we get into the different styles, can we talk about how these can really lead to just probably more deep-seated and not as easily seen incompatibilities between two people?
1: Yeah, I think you hit on something really key here that is kind of a, one of the themes that's unpacked in the four relationship styles. And that is that oftentimes we love each other very much, but we don't always love each other very well. And so there can be the sense of it, you know, we really care and, and we want to to share that love, but, but we keep kind of falling into these patterns that get us into a negative cycle. And so basically... Every relationship style is determined by the way we answer two questions, which we call the, the relationship blueprint. And those two questions are, one, am I worthy of love? And two, can I depend reliably on others to show me that love? Or in other words, are they competent and able to show me that love? Each of the four relationship styles answers those two questions you know, in, in their own unique ways. And so that really determines where you fall. And so let's say you have someone who has a a relationship style that's associated with, with doubting that they're really worthy of love or questioning their worth, or maybe having to sort of strive to earn love, so to speak. And then they're paired with someone who doubts other people's capacity to love. In a sense, that's other people's worthiness. So then you have a situation where it's almost like a magnetic pull because they're validating and affirming each other's subconscious or internal relationship beliefs, but not the healthy beliefs, right? Yeah. The, the beliefs that can keep us stuck. And so it can almost feel comfortable and nice to be with somebody who kind of aligns with maybe what your view of yourself is, even if it's not the most adaptive, but that can also... It can keep us stuck if we're not willing to do the work and to really unpack what our relationship style is and what our underlying relationship blueprints are, what our beliefs are that sort of have developed over the years to lead us in that direction.
0: That's so interesting. I just keep thinking about that point you made, love each other very much, but aren't able to love each other well. I think that's like mind blowing to hear that distinction. And it's so also so interesting because, you know, talking about your relationship beliefs, I don't necessarily think it's something we think about a lot. Like, you know, if you were to ask me what my relationship beliefs are, most of them have come up in real life situations. And I'm like, oh, that's how I think this should happen. But it's not necessarily something that we go into dating or in a relationship knowing. So we don't even really know it in ourselves. So, and then we don't know it in the other person either. And so a lot of it's just working through kind of those real-time situations together and then kind of discovering it along the way. And I think that's probably why, you know, you're in a relationship for a couple of years and then all of a sudden this big rift starts developing. So I think I'm sure there's a lot of benefits in, in being able to identify your relationship blueprint and your beliefs that that you hold.
1: Definitely. And I appreciate you normalizing that idea that, you know, we may not even really be aware of what those blueprints are. Because if you think about it, when we talk about, you know, these questions, like, do you believe you're truly worthy of love and and lovable? Do you believe you can really count on other people to show up for you and love you? That gets into kind of a deeper level of meaning. And, um, you know, in my day job, I I train counselors and psychologists. And so even in therapy, if if we think about, you know, in therapy, you're supposed to be able to come in and bear your soul with this in this safe space that's confidential. And even when we, we talk about those concepts, that's considered reflecting meaning and kind of getting into the deeper meanings, which is considered a little bit more advanced that even happens later in therapy. In what we try to create as like an optimal environment for vulnerability and connection and sharing. And so (laughs) in relationships, when a lot of us don't have that kind of training, or even if we do have that training, we can have blind spots when it comes to our own lives. So trying to get there and be comfortable with that level of vulnerability and to to share and say, oh, when we had this interaction, I felt unloved, or I, I felt like I know you maybe didn't mean it that way, but what I received was this message of that that maybe you didn't think I was worthy of love or not lovable wow that's that's kind of tough to to say out loud,
0: yeah, that is tough to say out loud, and it's also hard, I imagine on the other end to hear that when you had the best of intentions, but just how you were acting and communicating means something very different to your partner. so I imagine that you know, I can imagine people getting defensive and saying, what do you mean? You know, I'm making you feel unloved. I love you so much. Like I do this and this and this and this for you. So just like we can just be speaking completely different languages when it comes to relationships a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that that's an important piece that you're saying, because sometimes again, going back to that negative bias, right? We might be more comfortable giving that negative feedback in a sense, but also on the other hand to say, hey, when you did that, or when you said, said when you told me that the reason that you may be worried about finances, you know, a big topic of conflict for couples is finances. So when you complain about finances, when you told me that the reason you are concerned is because, you know, you wanted to make sure that you could take care of me, even if you, you know, die first or, well, I felt so loved and so cared for that you, you would think about those things. And um, it really made me want to, be a team player and collaborate and talk about how we can manage the budget together. And that's maybe a very different feeling from feeling, you know, unloved and unsupported and someone is maybe blaming you. So being able to give that feedback too of, thank you so much for sharing that because that really helps me feel loved or even using I statements, right? I feel very loved when I hear you say that.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of that's, it's, I have a two year old toddler right now. So, a lot of, and I'm taking like a toddler parenting class. And that's a lot of it too is like positively reinforcing things like that. So, that's the filter I'm currently seeing on. But I think that's so important across any, you know, any kind of relationship that you have is being able to be, to give people like descriptive, positive feedback about how they make you feel. And sometimes we think, oh, they know that I love them. I'm in a relationship with them, but it's, you know, that's not definitely not always not always the case.
1: If we could one diversion yeah. since a
0: three-year-old, which what a what a great age. Yeah. Have you guys ever watched uh Daniel Tiger's neighborhood? No, I haven't. I should. I've heard really good things about it.
1: It's really great. It's like next generation, Mr. Rogers. If you remember his his Daniel okay. Tiger. Daniel Tiger has a cardigan sweater, but of course it's a hoodie. It's still a zip-up. He has a trolley. He goes to the land of make-believe. But there's there's such uh, profound songs like uh, one of the ones I love, when you feel so mad that you could roar, take a deep breath and count to four, one, two, three, four. And, you know, they say that the way you do relationships, what we found in the research is the way we do relationships, the way we do attachment is the way we do emotion. And so I love the emotional fluency that Mr. Rogers teaches and the the way he fosters secure connection safe connections and safety with emotions and dealing with emotions so some of the research shows that kids that uh, grow up watching mr rogers tend to have longer attention spans and higher levels of creativity so i always recommend daniel tiger whenever oh I that's hear.
0: great thank you i appreciate that i know there's so much stuff out there but i didn't know that the two were were connected in that way That's really interesting on like safety with emotions and how that relates to attachment. Do you think, I'm just thinking of myself as probably someone who would identify as more of an anxious attachment style. I know a lot of that is because I still struggle feeling safe, expressing feelings, especially if it feels like they're going to impact someone else negatively. Meaning if I say, you know, this made me feel rejected by you or anything like that, still a very difficult thing. For me to express. Do you think that the safety and how we have felt in our emotions does play a big role in what style we end up being?
1: It's so huge because let's say uh, the exact example that you just gave, someone does something that stirs up some feelings of rejection inside to be able to kind of sit with those feelings that are so uncomfortable and maybe painful and kind of see, you know, where do I feel that in the body? What am I experiencing? How do I manage my discomfort? Is it going to look different with with the different styles, right? So if you grew up with a, what we call the networker style or the secure style, you had maybe many experiences where, You had really responsive caregivers that were kind of checking in with you, meeting your needs, always available. And so you grew to believe that other people are always going to be dependable and able to show love and the self is worthy of love. And so then it's very easy to trust. And if that feeling comes up, then it might feel very comfortable to share. Ooh, ouch, Uh, that hurt some rejection right at that moment could we say this a different way? Like, you know, (laughs) I would feel better if we could talk in this way about it. Right. So the person may feel very comfortable to share what their need is and to own their emotion and to feel comfortable with that. And to even sit with the, the, the intensity of the emotion without exaggerating it or without minimizing it, which, which can be tough being, being with it. But, you know, if someone has more of a what we call the security guard style, where you're kind of pushing away from connection, keeping people at arm's length because of past rejections, then there's more of a tendency to just kind of push further away and maybe minimize and dismiss and discount those those feelings. And so that's that's kind of a different response. And so but they they both have served the, an important purpose.
0: Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. I think in my case. You know, I had very loving, responsible parents, but I, I thanks to my therapist, I've been able to <laughs> to see that I just I never really had good examples of like rupture and repair within relationships. So I never I never got to see like a successful disagreement and then people coming back together. It was always mm-hmm. like. No, everything's, you know, it was kind of tried to keep of, oh, no, everything's very idyllic and we don't, you know, we don't get mad at each other. We don't fight. So I just never really got to see people who love each other having disagreements and then being able to come back together. And so I think that's always been something that has caused anxiety for me. If something seems to be going wrong, it's like, oh, no, it's going really wrong. Like we're not going to be friends anymore or we're we're breaking up or you know, something along those lines. So, so that just not, kind of
1: stirred up your anxiety, like, oh no, this is, this is a negative sign or going
0: in. A- yes. If direction. someone's mad at me, it's like, oh my gosh, it's that like complete end of the world. So, I think between therapy and then learning more about the attachment styles, that's definitely helped a lot. And I've had a lot of great examples now of, you know, having rupture and repair within relationships and, and seeing good examples of that. But I think, just being able to understand it at that kind of level is is super important. I would love if we could get into the the four different styles. Can you talk about why you chose to associate them with an occupation? I think that's really interesting, but I think it makes a lot of sense because it's like it's so much easier to understand.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I also want to just add before we go to that that I love that you were willing to share that insight, you know that you had that awareness and that you're also willing to to be vulnerable because I think a lot about for example, the serenity prayer, which is really popular in addictions. Yeah. Where people you know, having the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So just knowing, hey, I didn't really see a lot of good models about this, but this is something I can change and I can learn and I can work on. And we can't always control what other people do, yeah. right? That's where the serenity comes. But we can control how we respond, what we think about. I just love that.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you. That's a big compliment. I don't know if you caught it in the other episodes, but I've been in 12-step for a long time. And I the serenity prayer is a framework I use for so many different things because it's just, it's so simple, but it's so effective in being able to figure out what I can and can't do.
1: Yes, it is so effective. I, I love it. Yeah, it's a beautiful prayer. And then it's just such an effective interpersonal tool and even self-regulation tool. So you were asking about, the four different styles and why I went with occupations as a metaphor for each style, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So great question. Actually, it didn't start out that way. Originally, I started out using animals. And the reason I wanted to even use a metaphor was just to make it, you know, Easy for people to kind of visualize and see what these patterns would look like so they could feel more comfortable recognizing them in themselves and just understanding the dynamics more easily. So basically, it was an explanatory model. So at first, I started off with using animals, right? And seeing like, well, the secure networker style moves towards connection. So I kind of pictured this golden retriever that was really playful, just wanting to connect and come and, you know, lick your hand and invite that connection. And then the what we talked about as the security guard style was more the cat was like a little bit more aloof and still may want to be in the room with you or near you and have some connection, but maybe on their own terms and they also want to keep their independence, so it's so a little bit more independent. And then with sort of the anxious, we call the investigator style, I had used the example of a squirrel because mm-hmm. there's that sort of anxiety, that back and forth. I have a colleague from North Carolina that says uh, sometimes that's a person's acting squirrely. Yeah. Give <laughs> me that picture. And then for the firefighter style, or what some have called fearful avoidance, I kind of thought that was a little more challenging, but maybe the opossum because there's sort of this, this playing dead or, you know, kind of freezing and yeah. not, not knowing what to do, the kind of deer in the headlights type of view, which I, I guess deer in the headlights could have been, yeah. <laughs> well, then I had an alternative explanatory model where I used the occupations. And as I was talking with colleagues and students and, you know, kind of giving both models and asking what people resonated with, people tended to resonate more with the occupations. Yeah and so i i kind of shifted gears to the the occupations and uh like a colleague said you know i'm not really an animal person so you might have lost me with the animals but i really get it with these occupations so it seemed like it was just easier as an explanatory model for people to understand and and sort of visualize yeah well, what do you think
0: no i love the occupations especially now after getting to know you and hearing you know the all the thought going in behind the book. I mean, occupation is great because you can think of a strength of all of the things like, oh, I can think of strengths of an investigator, of a security guard, of a networker, obviously of a firefighter, like they're all so beneficial and so needed in society. And then occupation also reminds me of the fact that you know, just because I start as a firefighter, I don't always have to be a firefighter. So this idea that we can move in and out of, it's not necessarily who we are to the core. It's more of, you know, the role that we play within relationships. So I think I love those two distinctions with it.
1: Yeah. I really like the way you you said that. Yeah. And, you know, with our occupations too, oftentimes, for some people, you know, may work just because they, you know, enjoy working and maybe they're retired and don't have to. But for a lot of people, work is a way to meet their fiscal or financial needs and to be able mm-hmm. to earn an income and and meet that need. Whereas our relationship styles are a way to meet our relational and emotional and some of our psychological needs. Yeah. And so it's really a set of skills and behaviors and, and techniques and beliefs that we Kind of use and are organized around that help us meet those needs.
0: Awesome! No, I, I love the explanation. Can we start with talking about the networker? Maybe sticking with your methodology. Maybe starting with like their strengths within relationships.
1: Sure. Yeah, we'll do the the sort of cliff's note version or the short yes. version. We could do a full chapter on each one, but um, and which which we do have,
0: which <laughs> but- yes, which hopefully I, I, you know everyone goes out and can dive further into this.
1: Yeah, so the networker, and if, if you've studied attachment before, you may have heard the term like secure autonomous is the term in the research literature, the secure autonomous attachment style. And but again, each style is determined based on how they answer these two questions, right? Am I worthy of love? And are others competent and able to show me that love? their relationship blueprint, if you will. That's what they kind of build their relationship orientation on. And for the networker, the answers are yes and yes right? I'm worthy of love. Others are competent and able to show that love and they move towards connection. So the strengths are they're often master connectors and they tend to be very comfortable asking for help and receiving help. In romantic relationships, we both serve as a secure base for our partners to kind of go out into the world and also as a safe haven to come back and share their struggles and help get help organizing their feelings and we take turns serving in those roles for each other and for the the networker they're very comfortable with both of those roles they are comfortable expressing their emotions whether positive or painful emotions they're able to share those and and move towards those they tend to highly value relationships and they tend to stick with their Kind of relationship partners, they're they're kind of they tend to be very loyal because they are so valuing. And it doesn't mean that you won't see a networker that is divorced or has gone through a breakup, but you, you see that you know they may be hit pretty hard by that too because they do value those relationships so much. You also see strengths being the the ability to collaborate with others and work well as sort of a team player. The valuing of collaboration and Teamwork, and when it comes to uh, let's say if we go to the if we go to which one do you want to go to next?
0: Let's go. I just know because a lot of my audience tends to fall under anxious, so maybe let's go to investigator.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the investigator, if you think about maybe those old movies where you're, you're watching the detective with the magnifying glass or looking for evidence, or maybe I, I think I might be aging myself here, but did you ever watch Inspector Gadget?
0: Currently? Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. That investigative style person's looking for clues. So the investigator has often had a relationship history characterized by some inconsistency. So maybe sometimes their parent, maybe they had a parent that worked a lot. So sometimes that parent was very available and responsive. And other times the parent was just unavailable or for whatever reason, they experienced inconsistency. There was only one consistent thing about their relationship experiences growing up. And that consistent thing was inconsistency, right? The only thing they could rely on. So they became experts at sort of reading people because they had to look at all the cues to identify kind of what mood their parents were in and what they could expect. A lot of times for the investigators, they also dealt with role reversal. So you might've heard terms like the parentified child or the child is caring for the parents' emotions. And so instead of really getting to be the child, they're they're trying to take care of their parents' feelings. So for the the investigator, they really develop that capacity to be in touch with their parents' emotions and other people's emotions. So they can actually be very empathic and very aware of other people's feelings. And just like any strength, right? If it's overused, it could be our weakness as well. So they yeah. may not in with their own emotions. And They tend to be sensitive. They tend to also be highly valuing of relationships. They really value them. They want closeness. They tend to be somewhat comfortable with closeness, but can be a little anxious about it. And, you know, investigators are comfortable sharing and expressing emotion. So oftentimes they're willing to share with you the details of the story. They're willing to tell you kind of all about their relationship situation And when we interview the four different styles, I would say the firefighters and the investigator tend to have the longest relationship stories. The security guards tend to have the shortest story, and the networkers are kind of all over the map.
0: That's very interesting. I also think it's interesting that you said that anxious, because I always thought that anxious people wanted... People super, super close to them to like to make sure that they were never going to go away. But that is very interesting to say that they can also be anxious with closeness. I've never really heard that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- there can be such a desire for it. And sometimes there's an anxiety of or a concern about uh, maybe not being good enough or doing or saying the wrong thing. And that can be challenging, right? Because none of us is ever perfect. So we're eventually going to stumble in some way and so then that that anxiety can come up and you know another one of their strengths is they tend to be comfortable with some level of ambiguity so when you hear the investigator's story you might hear some passive language so they might say well you know my partner does this that and the other but they're not maybe seizing on the exact word and that mm-hmm. might be by some of the preoccupation with what's going on in the relationship so you, you hear some of that they're also have a flair for their dramatic. So they can be very interesting to talk to. <laughs> they can be great at you know poetry and literature and really delving into sharing intense emotions because they tend to feel very intensely and be comfortable sharing those emotions and, and sometimes even comfortable with exaggeration and that sort of dramatic flair at times.
0: Yeah. I have another question, but I feel like I'll ask it after you describe the other the other two. Okay, so let's, I guess we'll do the security guard next.
1: Yeah, so the security guard and the investigator, they tend to be attracted to each other for all the wrong yes, reasons. Totally, <laughs> yes. Sometimes it can work out well, but but it, t- it tends to create some additional challenges. But the security guard, I remember when I was going through some of my assessment training on how to assess attachment with these uh, really like gold standard instruments where we're interviewing participants and one of the things we noticed is that the security guards interviews were always the shortest like we might ask a question like would you describe what made your childhood relationship with your mom loving and they might say something like oh she was loving because she was caring what's your next question (laughs) and so it was just short so whereas uh You know, that was very different from some of the other styles that might kind of elaborate a lot. But they're basically moving away from talking about relationships and connection. So they're very concise. So that's maybe uh, could also be considered a strength. They're able to be very concise in their communication. They have a very clear strategy for dealing with relationships, and that is that they tend to move a bit away from them. As children, oftentimes a security guard experienced rejection, and and every child experiences that to some extent. But for to to develop a, a clear security guard style or avoidance style, really that becomes one of the most pervasive qualities about that caregiving relationship early in childhood, and it could be. For positive reasons, it could be the parent wants to teach the child to be independent, or there was a generation that believed that you could spoil a baby by holding them too much, which was yeah. pretty false. But so they may have tried to really cultivate that independence. So, of course, then a strength is that the security guard tends to be more independent, and they tend to often have really developed hobbies and skills, maybe even collections because a lot of the energy that some people may put towards relationship and connection they may be putting into objects activities and tasks interesting they tend to work independently but definitely carry their load on a, on a team and they're able to they're able to do work i guess if you're this kind of goes beyond the romantic but into the sort of working relationships if you're working with a security guard They typically can carry their load, work well independently with minimal instruction and have a lot of strengths in in sort of those directions.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had unlimited time and energy? As you're navigating your breakup, I know your energy can feel low and it can feel really difficult to complete everything you need to in a day. When you're emotionally exhausted, it's especially important to be really clear on what your priorities are and where your energy should be invested. So my question is, and I think there's probably a misconception on this, do security guards ultimately want to be in a like long-lasting romantic relationship?
1: So that's a very good question. And, and I think we have to go back to childhood to look at how this, this pattern of behavior developed, right? So in early childhood, let's imagine you have this young baby boy. And he is in his crib crying because he needs some care. And his mom, instead of going to pick him up, maybe goes out to the kitchen or or the the front porch to have a have a cup of tea with, with her husband. And so, and she believes she doesn't want to spoil the baby. She wants to let him cry it out. But that becomes sort of the pervasive response. So the baby continues often, you know, crying, but then eventually. Realizes you know no one's coming for him, and so may start to redirect. And in some of the research studies, what we've seen is as early as three years old, these children were able to stifle their emotion. And so, if you went into a nursery and you are observing the networkers, you know, crying their heads off as they're you know, like you imagine like a church nursery or preschool, the parent leaves the child there, kind of goes out. And you see the child's crying. And some people think, oh, that child's like misbehaving. They're crying so much. Well, actually that's attachment behavior. They're protesting their parents' departure because they have a strong bonding connection. Um, And of course, over time, they can learn that, you know, it's okay and mom comes back or dad comes back. But for the security guard, their goal is to keep a close connection, a relatively close connection with the rejecting caregiver. So if they protest too much, they could alienate their caregiver further and upset mm-hmm. their more and, and experience more rejection. So they learned to sort of subdue their emotion. And as early as, as three years old, when they measured the cortisol and stress responses in these children, they could see that internally the security guard was just as, as worked up as the investigator and the networker that were crying and expressing missing and needing. Wow. But when you saw the little boy in the nursery playing with his blocks. He just became more subdued, maybe more slowly stacking the box. Where the the uh, security guard investigator running to the door, like kind of patting them, hey, you know, crying and expressing, but they'd learned so early to stifle those emotions. So this pattern of behavior was something that really helped them deal with the rejection that they were experiencing and coping with trying to keep that connection without too much closeness. So okay. it's just a sort of love, love from a distance. And so when it comes to adult romantic relationships, you might find that security guards are on the market a bit more often for love. They may love from more of a distance and they're not as comfortable with expressing emotion, especially not needing and loving and being dependent, anything that communicates dependence because they highly value independence. So they may be, you may be more likely to find them in a maybe highly independent relationship where both partners mm-hmm. have more Individualized lives and maybe come together at certain times but also give each other a lot of space yeah but you don't often tend to find them in a relationship together because there's not as much glue to hold the relationship together there's got it moving away from each other yeah so another reason why we see the oftentimes the security guards with the investigators
0: yeah it's like they they're both kind of getting an unmet need met but it's not a healthy need or it's not like a healthy way to meet that need or how, I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly, but they're feeding each other's like kind of worst nightmare in a way, but it's like also kind of feels good.
1: Yeah. They're feeding each other's doubts and yet it's comfortable because kind of maintains a status quo for them. So if the security guard believes, well, you can't really count or depend on other people for relationship needs or really on your own, it depends on you and then the, the uh, investigator is feeling like, well, does my partner really love me? I feel like they don't need me. Well, it's because they don't, right? They've trained yeah. them. So it reinforces that belief. Where on the other hand, if that investigator was in a relationship with a networker within five years, their functioning as an investigator is going to continue to increase so that they have a lot of net, also have, tend to have networker tendencies. So okay. then- they may become even sort of in the middle of being a investigator or networker, may even shift to the different style because the networker will tend to, especially a high-functioning networker, is going to tend to be comfortable providing the investigator the reassurance that they need. And what can happen is because investigators tend to have that anxiety when they deliver their needs, it can come in such an anxious yes. wrapper that has some hostility. It can be hard to digest sort of the, the goodies and the vulnerabilities inside that would lead to connection. But the networker is more likely to have their Q tip, which in um, <laughs> the Mr. Rogers effect, we talk about the concept of the Q tip uh, acronym for quit taking it personally. So the I network were able to kind of see past that angst and to, you know, what's really going on here? Because they're not tending to take it personally. They believe they're worthy of love, and they believe other people can show love so then there's just looking at well what else is going on that's getting in the way and it makes it a little easier to connect and to trust even despite some of these patterns yeah. but they may not necessarily wind up together because the networker may want to be in a in a pair with someone who's maybe a little more direct as as they tend to be and a little more comfortable with a wider range of feelings
0: that's so true, though, like wrapped in a, I mean, my husband and I have had quite a few conversations about this where he's like, can you just say what you want to say? Because <laughs> I'll be like, so I was thinking maybe later we could talk about this. And, you know, I'm just like, I'm front loading it so much. And I can tell I'm, now I'm like, oh, of course, I'm like causing all this anxiety when really it's like, hey, can you do this? Or this is how I'm feeling. So my AA sponsor would always talk about Kendra, just be a little bit more casual in how you're bringing things up. Like, like what you said, you can say, Hey, ouch, like that hurts. It doesn't need to be this thing where you go home and, you know, days later, you're going to reach out and say, Hey, remember when this happened and this, and just trying to be more, you know, a little quicker. So it is great that we can, like, we can change those things about us over time. And, as someone who's like that, like it, it didn't, it doesn't have to ruin every good relationship we ever have a chance of, you know?
1: That's right. And, you know, you reminded me of something important too, this idea that networkers, another strength they have is they tend to be very balanced and not like necessarily blaming themselves and not blaming other people. And they also tend to maintain their sense of humor. So they could say, ouch, or button, like, ooh, button, like you just push the button, you're a button pusher, you're, yeah. you're a button. As in cute as a button, but also button as in pusher. So yeah, they, they can kind of tease each other and joke around. And interestingly, in uh, Dr. John Gottman's research, he also touches on this this idea of attachment, but he doesn't show call it that. But he talks about how couples, and he's able to predict with over ninety percent accuracy whether couples will stay together or go their separate ways. And one of the predictors is if they turn towards each other, and then another predictor is if they have five positive interactions for every one negative. They tend to have this oh. overall positive emotional climate. So networkers, even though they're still going to have conflict, especially since they're autonomous and uh, they have are able to communicate their own needs and opinions, which may differ from their partners, but they can do it in a way that's wrapped nicely and it's palatable and digested, di- easily digested by their partner rather than wrapped in some of the anxiety that we may have if we're an investigator.
0: Yeah, I mean that definitely makes a lot of sense and and I remember at one point and I can't remember if I read this somewhere or if just my therapist said it to me but like it's like it's good to have a safe space to like practice these sorts of things and I don't even think it has to be like in a relationship but there were a lot of things that my therapist was having me just practice, and it's so important to like kind of have that safe person to be able to practice that with, whether it be a friend or maybe you know if your partner is the networker, being able to to practice doing things a little bit differently. But you know it can be scary if you don't have that safe space, and practicing something can lead to rejection or, and that just makes like your worst fears come true about it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great. I'm so glad she's doing that. Cause you know, one of the things, and especially if anyone's gone through any trauma is the, the idea that, you know, and there's a misnomer with counseling that counselors can like make someone feel safe. You know, I know we, we use that language sometimes, but the idea is what we really want to do is develop the capacity to feel safe within our bodies and help our clients figure out what makes them feel safe. Hmm. So if you say, well, I know like if I can practice maybe role-playing a difficult conversation with someone who I know is on my side and is not going to get defensive, that's going to help me feel more safe. So when I go to have that conversation, I'm prepared. Or if I just write in my journal and and journal about it and kind of get an idea of what I want to say, then when I go in, I feel more comfortable and I feel more safe. Or, hey, I know if this other person is going to get triggered about something and start yelling and flailing their arms, well, (laughs) I'm not going to feel as safe. So I might need to take a step back and remind myself, kind of go through the serenity prayer and say, okay, like, is there anything I can do to help the situation? Is there anything I can control here? You know, what, what can I do? But yeah, that sense of safety is so important. And and for some of the relationship styles, it's so much harder to feel safe.
0: Yeah. I like you're innately just starting a few steps back from other people. So let's talk about firefighter. And then I have two last kind of questions about kind of all four of them. So can we talk about this is the one I'm like probably least familiar with.
1: Yeah. So a firefighter has literally walked through fires and, and been burned. And they've often developed a depth of character that you just can't get from not when you don't go through that level of suffering that they've been through. And, you know, the firefighter is, if you think about a firefighter, right, their priority is safety. They want to help people feel safe. But the challenge for them is they have to actually run into the fire. Yeah, everyone else does. If you look at these babies as firefighters, what they had to deal with, they might've had a parent that maybe struggled to manage their temper. So there may have been some abuse. And in order to get care, they had to go to that parent, but they also risked experiencing abuse or pain. So they had to actually move towards this fire, not knowing if that fire is going to keep them warm or going to burn them. So that could take a lot of courage can it can be very scary. And so there's a lot of focus on safety with the firefighter because they've experienced so much pain that their window of tolerance it, you know and, and they've often experienced trauma so their window of tolerance is a bit smaller. It's easier to get overwhelmed with emotion. It's harder to stay present with uncomfortable emotions. It's easier to get tr- triggered by some people's behavior and to have that trigger kind of stir up some past painful feelings. But again, the firefighters develop a depth of character. They've gone through suffering. They often can have compassion for others. Long suffering. They've been through difficult relationships, and they may perhaps have the capacity to love difficult people that uh, others maybe have have more trouble <laughs> experiencing. Yeah. And so, for the firefighters, they this in the. Academic literature, you might hear it called fearful avoidance. So they have the challenges of both the security guard and the investigator. They may experience, they, they may want to, like a security guard saying, like, you know, stay away. They're guarding their space, their independence, they're pushing others away, and they're practicing avoidance to cope with their relationship challenges, and the investigator is practicing more hypervigilance, trying to stay on top of everything, trying to uh, anticipate what to expect, so they're having more anxiety. So the firefighter has both sets of challenges. Okay. It's a little bit harder for them to feel safe in their own skin, to feel comfortable. They didn't really have a lot of modeling growing up in terms of how to deal with that. Like, for example, let's say they had to go to a surgery, you know, surgery can be traumatic. If a networker went to have surgery, they may have had a parent that says, you know, it might be scary, but the shot will only hurt for a second. And then you're going to go to sleep and mommy's going to be here holding your hand. And, you know, so that's kind of teaching that child to regulate. And over thousands of interactions, they kind of internalize that comforter and they that maternal sort of a capacity to comfort themselves. Whereas the firefighter, maybe they went through and no one was there for them during their surgery, or maybe it was a stranger or a nurse that was in and out. And so they don't necessarily have that capacity. So a lot of their strategies in adult relationships are geared around moving towards safety. But because they have experienced things that both the investigator and the security guard have experienced, they may also use the toolkits of both. So they don't necessarily have as clear of a strategy, as organized of a strategy. Like The, the security guard's pretty much always moving away from connection. That's how they're dealing yeah. with relationship challenges. The investigator is moving towards and becoming maybe more anxious or more hyper-aroused about the relationship, more invested, and that's how they're dealing with it. And the firefighter doesn't really know what to do. They're okay. trying both and maybe having more challenges. But as the firefighter becomes more high functioning, becomes more aware of their style, more aware of how they've been burned, what their relationship rules are. When we go back to those relationship blueprints, am I worthy of love? The firefighter's answer tends to be no. And are others competent and able to love me? Their answer tends to be no there as well. Okay. but. You know, if you have a firefighter style, also see kind of what your secondary style is when you take the quiz, because the idea is once you resolve maybe trauma or abuse or sort of the fires that you've walked through, the losses, then you'll default to one of the other three styles, which has
0: more of a a clear strategy. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And that was actually my final kind of wrap up question for you is so many people listening to this podcast. Are not in relationships, they're going through breakups. And so, what would be your recommendation on let's say they get your book? How can people work on these things while single? And how can they, you know, become more aware? You know, and I, mean, I don't even know if improves the right word, but just evolve from their last relationship into their future relationship?
1: Yes. I think. Growing into becoming your best self, and you know, working on that can sort of have this magnetic effect. Where then you tend to, there's a saying that you've probably heard, and many of the listeners probably heard, "Birds of a feather flock together." Right? So you're thriving, and you're doing well, and you're sort of putting yourself out there. Maybe you're drawing in more people that are kind of moving in that direction as well. And so I think you know, the starting point would be. When you get the book to take the quiz, the assessment is called the rest, the relationship styles test. And actually there's a mini version that's available online now if people want to get just an idea and then they can take the more in-depth version in the book. But I would take the assessment and identify what's your relationship style. And then of course I recommend you know reading each style because you might be in relationship with other people with the different styles and it can be helpful to have the insight about why they may be doing what they're doing that can help with compassion, but maybe even first going to the chapter that corresponds with your style. So let's say you take the quiz and say, okay, my style is the investigator. And then you go to that chapter and say, okay, well, what are the strengths? What are the challenges? And there's some journaling prompts. Oh, great. And I know some people love to journal. So like taking time to write down your thoughts, journal about your response to those relationship blueprint questions. And what's it like to just sit with those responses? It can be very uncomfortable. And we, we have all sorts of ways of numbing our discomfort, uh, right? With different, with different coping mechanisms. But to just try to get, stay present with that feeling before doing anything to minimize it can really be, be, uh, it can be unsettling at first. But to practice that can help us get more and more comfortable with our own skin. And as we know ourselves, and know what we need and what helps us feel loved, we're more able to express that in a way that's more palatable. So when we're going into that next relationship, we know how to feel more safe, more more secure. We know how to create more security in the relationship. We know how to express our needs so the other person can have a better shot at meeting them. And we know how to express them with the hostility and without it, right? We yeah. can express to recognize the difference. And so I think that's maybe a starting point, you know, taking the assessment, reading the corresponding chapter, taking time to journal and really sit with what you find.
0: Yeah. I also feel like if someone is single, they, you know, they don't, might not have the practical application of that. But I mean, I assume it's pretty similar with you look at your friendships or your family relationships. Like you can see attachment styles collide everywhere, (laughs) any kind of relationship that you have. So it's not necessarily something I assume that you have to be in an active relationship to be able to examine.
1: Yeah, you're so right. Because one of the things, so a lot of my training has been in assessment of attachment. And so there's different types of ways that we look at relationship styles. So some people specialize in looking at parent-child relationship styles. Others specialize in romantic or friendship. But we tend to have one primary relationship style that one set of sort of relationship beliefs and blueprints that guide our interactions across all these different domains. And so the neat thing about the REST, Relationship styles Test, is that it uses the research and data from all, there was a panel of attachment experts and a a statistician that we worked with to to validate this assessment. So it, it uses some of the information from all these different assessments so that you can take this one brief assessment and identify sort of your, your overall style and have a sense of of what that might be.
0: That's great. I love that. And, and I think it's such a great thing to be able to, to look at not necessarily, I mean, obviously we can reflect back on past relationships and, and get more validation and more real world examples of that. But I think more so, I like to encourage people to look at it moving forward on how, you know, how you can respond or, or even just like learn how to make yourself feel safer within relationships, which I think is is really important. And I, I learned through my work that a lot of people don't feel safe within relationships. And, and I think that's something that everyone should be able to experience.
1: Kendra, can I share with you one exercise yeah. that can really help people feel more safe?
0: Yes, that would be great. Awesome. So I think I love this
1: and I I didn't come up with it. I learned it from a master at Connection, a really prototypical secure networker. And he was on television. Many of us grew up watching him. Uh, He was on for more than 30 years. His name was Mr. Fred Rogers. He had a program called Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. And did you grow up watching Mr. Rogers? I did, yeah. So a lot of folks in the US and Canada may be aware. I know sometimes I'm running into people now that as familiar, but they did make a movie with Tom Hanks a couple of years ago where Tom Hanks starred as Mr. Rogers. And my previous book was called The Mr. Rogers Effect. And it really dove into, you know, wait a second, this guy died over 20 years ago, but we're still making movies about him, quoting him. He's still influencing our culture. How did he have such an impact? So in this study, what we found was that he was mentored by Dr. Margaret McFarland, who was one of the greats in developmental psychology, and she supervised his counseling training. The two of them hit it off so well that he continued consulting with her for the rest of her life and career. And they met regularly. He took down copious notes and recorded their discussions and he took concepts that she taught him, like she taught him the idea that feelings are mentionable and manageable. And if we can talk about our feelings, it, it makes them much easier to manage. And, and she said, the way she said it was whatever is human is mentionable and wh- and whatever's mentionable is manageable. And he shortened it to just feelings are mentionable and manageable. And then he wrote songs about that for kids. But there was one thing he did every single time he did a presentation or got at, received a television award, And he did this exercise with people. And it was so powerful. And it only took a little over 10 seconds. But it really helped transform the way they were feeling. So I'll I'll just adapt it to our current situation. But basically, Mr. Rogers would say, he would honor, you know, where you are. So, you know, he might say, you know, Kendra, you have developed this incredible podcast to reach people all over the world who may be struggling with heartbreak and challenge and to to offer them hope. And for our listeners, they may have struggled with heartbreak. They may be wanting to improve their relationships. And they're in a position of being willing to, as we say in the serenity prayer, have the courage to change the things you can. And they're, they're looking for what they can do. And chances are, you didn't get to this place of having such an incredible attitude and desire to instill hope and help others on your own. Chances are there's are some people along your journey that have loved you into being who you are today. They may be right here nearby in, in the room or house with you. They may be far away. They may even be in heaven. But chances are there's are some people that loved you into being who you are today and they love the best in you so let's take a moment to think about those people if we could let's take 10 seconds i'll keep the time thank you imagine how happy they would be to know that in this moment you thought of them I love And that. you know, after guys, I love to ask, like, what do you feel inside?
0: I mean, I feel like both very loving and very loved in that space. Mm. Like talking about That's your, beautiful. you know, like kind of the blueprint questions, like, am I worthy of love? Do I think people are capable of giving love? Like, I, you know, I feel like a very resounding yes to both of those after after doing that.
1: Oh, that gives me gives me chill bumps. Yes. <laughs> so yes, how- so move that needle towards the yes on both of those questions. Yeah. We get in touch with that. And, you know, occasionally you might have a person that says, oh, I I don't, can't think of anyone who, and maybe there are teachers or coaches or people, and, and we want to go back to that and, and nurture that. But for, for many people, they come up with someone. For me, it's, uh, I think of my memes. I keep her picture <laughs> right oh, here. On my- okay. She was so loving. And, um, you know, she went to heaven a couple years ago, but yeah, she really was one of those people that just kind of loved the best in you and um, and encouraged that. And I wonder who came to mind for you, Kendra.
0: I mean, I feel very lucky that it was everyone that I thought of is is still with us. But I mean, my parents who are still right here and, you know, my really like friends came to mind, which which feels really nice. And even some friends that I don't, you know, don't talk to today but just were you know such important people on different points of of the journey so i love that exercise and i think that's a great exercise for people to do cuz i often tell people when they are experiencing a breakup it feels like they lost their one and only and they forget all the other people that still very much love them and are very much there for them and just because we lost a boyfriend or a wife or a husband. We still have a lot of people in our lives cheering us on. So, I think that's a great note to end on. And and I'm so thankful for your time on here. And I'm excited to to read the book. So your book comes out, I believe, January 24th. Correct?
1: Yes. Oh, I think January 23rd. 23rd. Okay. Michael Jordan's jersey number was it 23? 23.
0: Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's what I was trying to <laughs> remind myself that. It
1: was
0: a- 23, and so then yeah, I- January. T- Okay. January 23rd. One, two, three. It's a great number. Well, I hope everyone yeah. goes out and and gets the book and, and really dives into it. And I feel like I could, we'll have to do a part two of this because I feel like I could keep chatting with you. So again, so, so grateful for your time. And I assume the book will be available everywhere. People can buy books and we'll make sure to link everything in the show notes too.
1: Yes. And yes, I would just say when you go to look for it, it yeah, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your neighborhood bookstore. It's called The Four Relationship Styles How Attachment Theory Can Help You in Your Search for Lasting Love. Because I think there's a, a similar title. Okay. So, subtitle is I think How Attachment Theory Can Help You in Your Search for, for Lasting Love. And right now, actually, there is a, a great pre-order bonus. So if you actually pre-order the book, the publisher is giving away the audio along with the pre so if you like if you're a podcast listener, as yes, you know, those are, and you like to listen to audiobooks, you can pick up the audio book for free with the pre-order. If you go to Dr. Anita Coonley, K-U-H-N-L-E-Y dot com, you can find the link when you click on books and the four relationships. You can find the link to take the quiz. So the free quiz okay. is available to listeners. And you'll find the information there for like four different pre-order bonuses, uh, a feelings wheel to help with that emotional fluency, the security priming exercise to help increase your feelings of security with some short exercises. If you are a person of faith, there's a God attachment activity that you get as a bonus, that can help just increase that sense of feeling safe and secure as well as the audiobook. So it's a great time to get the bundle. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. Okay, we'll make sure to link that in the show notes so people can just scroll down and, and get access to that. But thank you so much again, and very excited for people to, to be able to read this book.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kendra. I've so enjoyed talking with you and hearing some more of your story, getting to know you. I look forward to doing this again and hearing your thoughts after the book release.
0: I always end these episodes the same way, reminding you to be nice to yourself, stay connected with loved ones, and the biggest reminder is that this too shall pass. I promise.